I'm Reverend Beth Hayward, and this is Souls and Souls, a podcast for the spiritual but not religious and the religiously spiritual. These practices are empowering. There's nothing magical about them. There's science behind why, why they work, but being able to realize that you within you have the power to, to speak to yourself in the way that you always wanted to hear, that by moving or breathing in a certain way, you can connect with a part of you that's always okay and the part of you that is stronger than you thought you were. I mean, that would be my hope. That would be my hope to offer people. Today I'm in conversation with Lisa Dumas, a former stressed out radio broadcaster turned yoga teacher and certified yoga therapist. Lisa is passionate about helping people manage and improve their physical and mental health, drawing from the systems of yoga, meditation, Ayurveda, and personal development. She curates accessible healing experiences for the modern busy person. In her facilitation of groups, retreats, and private sessions, Lisa brings the intention of helping others create kinder inner landscapes so they can lead and work from a place of compassion, self-trust, and belonging. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, have been looking forward to this conversation, and given my background in religion, part of my actual hope in these conversations is to just break down those barriers of religion and spiritual, and perhaps to lean people towards anything we do uh, that's an effort to better ourselves for the sake of the world um, is kind of where it's at. So, so my first question to you is, when I use that word spiritual, does that resonate uh, for you in terms of your vocation and calling in your life? Do you see the work you do as spiritual work? I do very much so. And that word has also become so overused that what does that mean? And I think it's important to break down what that means personally. Um, I was not raised in a religious or spiritual home. One of my parents had religious trauma in his background. So if anything, we were directed against it. However, I was a real natural seeker and this underlying dissatisfaction and, and discontent, I think I attribute to knowing there was something more, uh, but not really sure about what that was. And through the years, I had many friends who would regularly attend church and they would bring me and I was very attracted to the community. And I was very attracted to the joy that I was feeling around me that came with this sense of purpose. And it wasn't until I entered that right yoga class, because I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, we can talk about this later, but something about the way that you move and breathe within the practice for many of us can create a sense of inner contentment that can lead us to what I might consider a spiritual experience. But for me, it wasn't until I stepped foot in that right class with the right teacher where I had a sense that, oh, this is something that makes sense to me. And the philosophy behind it made sense to me. 
Oh, I think that will resonate with people. I, the first yoga class I attended was yours when my 14 year old daughter, um, dragged me, I will say. And <laughs> what I noticed is I, I spent the whole class in tears. I took up my mat at the back, like people do when they're new and there was this release. And so that piece you speak of, of finding the right yoga teacher, it's the same thing people tell me when they come into church after years of whatever the trauma is or the disconnect. Uh, so what, what is that release about? I think the answer to that question is presence. When I describe the experience that had me commit to my yoga practice, I've had people say that sounds like a religious experience and it wasn't anything complicated. It was a specific pose. And all of a sudden I felt Again, I and I, I'm sure that you can relate. Sometimes I almost feel like language cheapens these experiences, yes. but there was this sense of stillness, and it was almost a sense that everything is going to be okay. That that just completely infused my being. And it was so new for me that I was struck in that moment with that experience. And it lingered. It stayed with me. It almost felt like something changed. And that really built on the experience in the first yoga class where I think I had an experience of being present. And we hear all the time, the power of presence, but what does that mean? You know, that's a very elusive place, this idea of being here now. And it would be very complicated to do that all of the time. But if you haven't been, if, if you are someone who lives with the voices in your head and the inner dialogue, and then all of the distractions around us, um, which can be very addicting and which that's what we're taught to do. Once you experience presence, this moment of this breath, this body, it is a doorway to, to me, a sense of inner contentment that is always there for us. That, that has been my experience and that has become my belief system because of my experience with yoga practices and yoga therapy. It's, a, it's almost uh, disarming, but I appreciate you saying it's, I mean, you can't live in that state all the time, mm -hmm. but to know that it's always available sounds like uh, the gift you're trying to open up to people. <laughs> That has been what it's become. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but you know, we all have our our reasons for why we entered into that church or that studio or opened that book. And for me, uh, a gnawing sense of discontent really grew in my life to disordered anxiety. And you're never sure what you're in for when you're called into those spaces. So it is disarming, it's unexpected. And then throughout committed practice and then throughout a lot of study, I have come to that that's the, that's the teaching is that no matter what is going on, there is an undercurrent and I use the word contentment that is always available to us, but I imagine in other traditions that undercurrent would be named something else. Um, for me, it's contentment, it's well-being, and then it's a doorway to a 
part of me that's not afraid. That is, that is how I relate to it. That is how I've come to understand it and in my way and in the language that I can use right now. So yeah, we need to go way back to see how you got here. I tell people about, you know, whether it's your first panic attack and what led to it or uh, how there was this unraveling in those early teen years of what otherwise was, you know, pretty ordinary, loving home with all its usual family systems, things about it. What, what happened there and how did that impact you? Yeah, thank you for asking it in that way, because I do come from a loving home. And as I'm finding now as a mother, we can love our children and our children can still internalize messaging that's not helpful. And just based on my own family system, I, I think that I internalized a lot of shame and I matched love and acceptance with being really, really, really good, like having to be really, really, really good. And then throughout some of those formative years in junior high and high school, when there was rejection and dynamics within friend groups, I think the way that I received that was with a lot of shame and a lot of fear. And, and unfortunately, just kept internalizing that I was bad. And I started to live life, as I say, on the edge of my seat, um, nervous all of the time, yet somehow led into this career that that put me in the public eye to some respect. It, you know, somehow led to being on the air as a broadcaster. So the stakes are a little bit high because things are live and people are listening and you're meeting for weekly critiques from your boss. And I just, I didn't have a healthy, I'm sure many people can relate. I didn't have a, he a healthy sense of self or, you know, personal power, self-esteem, unfortunately, any of that. And that did result in unhealthy coping mechanisms. And now that I know as much as we can know about anxiety, there is still a lot that isn't known. You know, it's genetic. Um, it can be pushed to the surface because of lifestyle choices. And then for me, I don't think there was a moment where I was awake when I wasn't vigilant, you know, when my nervous system was not turned way up. We're wired to do that, but it was, it was too much. You know, I, was just consistently tense and consistently fearful. And then it takes a lot of energy to hide that and to put on that cloak of confidence and go out there and, and, and try to be successful because there was another side of me that was really motivated to succeed in my goals. And I, I just think also too many late nights and, using alcohol as a way to numb all of that and to find just a little bit of freedom where I could leave some of that fear behind. It all just accumulated into a panic attack. And that is different from an anxiety attack. Um, a panic attack, it can seem like it comes out of nowhere and you really do feel that this is it. You know, it is such a terrifying experience. I, I, I couldn't imagine that 
I, I wasn't having some episode that was going to result in my death. It was so, so, so scary. And of course, when something so scary happens, our body is made to remember that and want to avoid that at all costs. But that's something that comes from within you. How can you think that you can avoid that? And, and then that's when it becomes a disorder because, well, think of all the ways that people try to avoid what's going on inside themselves. That's the opposite of presence. I now believe that presence is a healing force. There was nothing present about the way that I lived after that day because in the background was just a consistent, when is this going to happen again? And doing everything that I could to try to avoid that. You're saying you have a panic attack and it changes you, but it doesn't bring you to presence and new life right away. That <laughs> I think that's helpful for us to remember that sometimes these uh, these life-changing evolutions that have possibility for new life, uh, that it might start with a significant instance, but then there's a whole lot of work that needs to happen to, uh, to start on the journey of healing. Uh, that meant a lot to me to just hear you say that because I can look back now and be really grateful for those years, but to have somebody say like, that was an instance where new life began. And you're right, the new life for 15 years after that was so challenging because also the, the times were different and there wasn't the information about anxiety and mental health as there is now. So I had that added layer of tension because I completely hid that part of myself. And so, Think about what we know about shame now, right? It thrives in secrecy. And my whole life was a lie. And what people that knew me then were seeing on the outside, this fun, effusive, audacious party girl, that was such a front and, and, and challenging to, to keep up. And I really felt that what was going on behind the surface was too heavy like just too much, too much for people. So, you know, I, I've, I've spoken about this and written about this when I did meet the man who became my husband and, and I was able to tell him and he didn't look at me like I was crazy and ex accepted me that helped me, you know, that's very therapeutic when you tell somebody your story and you're accepted and they don't run from you. <laughs> so that was that was that was really one of the first steps is is realizing that it's normal and and that is one of the first steps that a lot of therapists and I will certainly take with people that come to me is normalizing the situation. Yeah, this is a part of being human and then as you stated the way that I have said it and to think about it now you know, what if anxiety is it this terrible, scary sentence that is now going to define you for the rest of your life? What if this is a messenger just inviting you to notice that the way that you're seeing yourself and the way that you're seeing your life is, is through a lens that maybe is not true. And, and this is here to, to give you another prescription for how you see yourself in the world. It's normalized being human. Um, 
and I, I do look at my own teenage children and think, yeah, they can, they have this language that, that we didn't of being able to talk about, I'm feeling anxious. Um, and it, it just feels like we have a long way to go. Uh, but the more every individual can, um, who has some awareness can normalize anxiety. Uh, wow. <laughs> Could make huge, huge strides. <laughs> it's true. And uh, something that does concern me now about languaging, I love that it's out in the open. I do wonder if you know, panic attacks are still really out in the open. The clients that I've worked with, because it feels like such a loss of control. You know, it's very as existential, that kind of fear. And and the fear, it's it's really the fear of fear itself. It, that's that's really what it is. And to have it, it is a courageous act to be able to sit with that fear because ultimately when we're dealing with anxiety, the first step is to somehow befriend it and allow it because the resistance of it does make it worse. I mean, the more we tense up against it, um, the more it can be prolonged. So, you know, it is, there's nothing easy about it. And as it becomes talked about more openly, I do hear a lot of people identify themselves with it though. So that's the only, that's the thing that I like to gently correct because I'll hear the language like, well, my anxiety I, you know, I have anxiety, I am anxious, and our language is powerful. I, I do like to say that our body is listening to everything that we say. I do want to ask you about the practices, you talk about some practices being non-negotiable. So I, I hear in that, um, perhaps sometimes you're better than others at connecting with your breath and your life and that presence. Um, what are the practices that, uh, that you absolutely make time for, um, for your own sense of health and well-being? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for asking me that. Sometimes it is very small. Sometimes it is, it is simply talking to myself. Um, may I be here right now? I have a right to be here. As a mother, sometimes it's may I be at peace with her journey? You know, sometimes it is just talking to myself and then that, that is all that there is. And whenever I talk about practices, I always also like to add that our practices, may we see them as invitations and not another should in our lives. You know, when I'm offering a lot, I, I would prefer that people not think of this as a should. And if they're not performing them daily, that they're somehow a failure. I also really believe that we're already, you know, we're already good. This tendency to want to be better and to be so good, you know, that's what drove me into anxiety into the first place. And so it can be a tendency to keep learning and to keep reading and studying and getting certifications and, and knowing more and never feeling like we know enough or we're good enough, but we are already. So even before I talk about practices, I, I like to say that right here, right now, before taking a certain breath technique or embarking on a practice or opening up a book, like already you're good. You're you're good. Carl Jung has a quote that I love so much where he said, I'd rather be whole 
than good. And the way I see that is that we're able to accept all aspects of who we are and, and bring them into one, you know, divine whole that, that there's not just certain parts of us that, that we want to shine the light on and, and we're only worthy if, if we're embodying those qualities, but, you know, how can we, how can we embrace them all? Non-negotiable practices are as simple as a conscious breath. You know, the practice of presence is challenging because we're not trained to be present, especially now. But if we can learn first thing in the morning, maybe from bed, the first three, I'm going to take three breaths now and I'm going to be just with this breath. I'm going to feel my inhale move in through my nose and I'm going to feel the exhale move out of my nose and allowing our minds to focus on a point of focus like the breath and then allowing our minds to tether into our bodies because our bodies are always present, right? That is my non-negotiable and that is threaded throughout my day, feeling my feet on the ground, feeling the sensation in my hands, letting my awareness move to where I feel sensation in my body, not because I'm looking for something wrong, but just that tethers me to my senses. You know, there's so much information coming into us all the time and the brain is filtering out what it doesn't need because it's, it would be overwhelming if, if everything about our environments were coming to us. Our brain is only focused on the most important thing. And that is often what could go wrong here, right? So it's, it's so easy for us to just be listening to that voice, the what if and the what could go wrong. But what I've learned is feeling your feet on the ground, feeling sensations in your hands, being with that conscious breath, right here, right now, we're usually okay. You know, you know, many of us are blessed to say that we're usually okay. And so I, I would say that my non-negotiable is starting the day with presence, remembering that how I might feel and what I might think first thing in the morning or at any given time. It's just a habit. It's just a pattern. I mean, yes, thoughts are important. And a lot of the thoughts that we have maybe aren't useful. Maybe we can learn to observe them rather than, you know, follow them and and believe that we are them, believe that that's somehow our intuition. I think for a lot of people, um, this might come as just radical new way of being. I like, cause you're, you're not talking about setting time aside to do your practices. You're talking about a way of being throughout the day and that you use the word habit which uh, it's a continual commitment to checking in with your whole self instead of just what's happening in your mind and i mean a formal practice being able to to move in certain ways you know the the reason that yoga and you know i i teach therapeutic yoga the reason that we feel better is when we're moving and it doesn't have to be yoga, it could be uh, a walk with intentionality with presence. But as soon as we start to move, 
we start to breathe better. You know, for some of us, especially some of us who would consider ourselves worriers or suffer with anxiety, you know, the breath is held, the breath is shallow. We we often have to relearn to breathe. And also often, if we ask an anxious person to take a deep breath, a lot of people who are anxious have a lot of anxiety around their breath. It's, it's something that I haven't read a lot about, but I found that in myself. And I find that with most overly anxious people that I work with. And I think it's because the breath feels so um, held and it feels like you can't get a breath when you're in the midst of a panic attack. So when you, when you start to have somebody relate with their breath, it gets very uncomfortable. But when you move, all of a sudden, your breath becomes more regulated. And then when we're breathing more regulated, that just makes sense. We're going to be thinking more clearly. We're not going to be thinking from a place of fear and confusion because Obviously, if we're breathing well, there's not a scary saber-toothed tiger, you know, behind the bush. If we're breathing full and complete, then our our body can rest its vigilance looking for something that's going to hurt us. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when your website's opened up, the first thing that comes across the top, bolder than life on the front page, is my passion is to help you remember that you are more than anxiety and you are stronger than you think. So when I think of your vocational work, and we've talked about anxiety, let's talk about uh, your calling um, to help people remember that we're, we're stronger. We're stronger than those stories that are replaying in our minds. Mm-hmm. How do you offer yourself uh, in service to others to, to help build that sense of perspective? Thank you for asking me that. Because my initial training and the way that I help myself heal was through this tradition of yoga. It behooves me to honor, you know, the roots of that system. And it would take me lifetimes to learn it and understand it. You know, obviously I am a white woman who grew up in Canada. Now I live in California, so I can only understand the systems of yoga through the lens that I have. And so I, I want to acknowledge that off the top because the word yoga is in my vocational title. You know, it, it comes with all of that. I honor it. And from what I understand about yoga, it has been ever changing and ever evolving depending on the culture that it moves into. Now, over a decade later, and having completed this very powerful yoga therapy course. Um, I'll give them a shout out, Breathing Deeply Yoga Therapy, because I know a lot of people, um, psychologists and and doctors and, and physical therapists are all sort of interested in this adjunct therapy because it is an adjunct therapy. Um, therapists know that there's only so much you can do with talk therapy. You do need to include the body. We know that um, we're not just thinking with our brain that, that our bodies also contain our experiences and our memories. So the body needs to be included in the process. If I'm gonna talk about how I see my clients and the work that I do in the world, first I 
I honor, you know, the yoga that I do use. And then I would admit that it's something that evolves and it's something that's individual for each client, depending on what's going on. The teachings of yoga therapy teach you to view your clients through a compassionate lens. Each of us is different. Um, in the Western culture, we might say that there are type A people, you know, we, that's not the way that I would see it. I would see that that's a certain patterning of the mind. That's, that's a person whose self-talk is more obsessive based on achievement. And of course it is. Uh, understanding just a little bit of brain science helps us to understand why we are in, in the boat that we are in, you know, it's, it's patterns, it's past conditioning. And these practices, really the core of all of them is helping us to experience the present moment. And each one of us will have different practices that work. Meditation might not work for everybody, you know, especially if somebody is dealing with acute trauma, that might be too much. Getting somebody moving might be best because it's hard for them to focus otherwise. So it's very individual. And that's why as somebody who shares yoga in group situations, it's wonderful. And I love to do it. And, and there's something about being in a group, even if, even if it's digital, there's something about that that is powerful. But to really be able to give somebody individualized tools that will meet them where they are and that will give them their own experience of I am stronger than I think I am, there's a lot that needs to be taken in about that person, about the way of their mind, about their physicality, their history. So all of that comes into play when it comes to how I might work with people. But sometimes just hearing somebody tell you, you know, you are stronger than you think you are and you are more than your thoughts. You are more than anxiety. That can be, as you say, radical and mind-blowing. And I, and I think that that information can come when we're ready for it. When I did walk into that right yoga class and that teacher said, well, you know, you're not your thoughts. You don't have to believe them. That was radical for me as a, you know, um, late twenties, early thirties, somebody for me, I hadn't, I didn't know that. I thought that the thoughts that I had, that was my intuition telling me about the world and everything that was scary and all the ways in which I was failing and all the ways in which I had to be better. And that was just keeping me stressed. That was keeping me a prisoner. When somebody said, no, 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 that's not even you. That's just everything that you have learned in your life on this earth. And maybe before, like, that's just everything that you've learned. And it's like this loop it's, it's like a record player that is just playing in your mind over and over. Um, so for me, that was really powerful. And so sometimes just giving people that information and information about what's going on in their brain and their body when anxiety is happening can be powerful. Not to mention letting people know that what's happening when we're having a, an anxiety attack, that really is our body's way of helping us. That is our, our survival instinct at play. So if we can find a way to um, befriend once again and work with our body as opposed to resist, that's also very empowering. I would say that these practices are empowering. 
There's nothing magical about them. There's science behind why, why they work, but being able to realize that you within you have the power to, to speak to yourself in the way that you always wanted to hear that by moving or breathing in a certain way, you can connect with a part of you that's always okay and the part of you that is stronger than you thought you were. I mean, that would be my hope. That would be my hope to offer people. Yeah. Well, and then you just take that to if we can be in that space more often, imagine how much more we can offer to the world or to those people around us um, in such an authentic, beautiful way. My teacher, my yoga therapy teacher, Brent Pasalakwa, that's what he says to us because you can look around in the world and you can feel helpless. Uh, you know, where can I donate my money to? Where can I donate my time to? How can I move the needle? How can I help? And he often says that cultivating your own sense of inner contentment. So the sense of being content underneath it all, even though you are navigating through the messiness of life is the greatest gift that we can give to other people because we don't, we can't understand what's happening really between two people when we're interacting. And if we have that sense of grounding and if we have a, a sense, just some sort of connection to inner peace, it's a gift. It is a gift to other people. And if we're relating with other people from a present place. And I can't say that this ha happens all the time, especially in my role as mom. <laughs> you know, sometimes when it really counts, I totally fall into patterns and, and habits and am not my best self. Um, but yes, it, it, I do believe that cultivating in ourself is a gift for others. I do want to ask you about this pandemic year and has it shifted anything in you, um, in who you are in your, in your work and life? Have you, whether it's learned anything or maybe even um, just been attuned to new insights this year? I think it's, has changed me in some ways. It, not for the better. I, I feel that I am much more distracted. I, it is harder for me to find longer periods of presence. It's harder for me to focus. Uh, I watched myself deal with the beginning of it, just sort of jumping into work, jumping into okay, well, how can I serve online there? And how can I pivot, right? And we watched a lot of people do that. And uh, I know that was a way of not really looking at it, of, of adapting. And I can see all of the ways in which I distracted myself. It was humbling. You know, this year was humbling. My husband and I were humbled and we can't believe the joys that we have and the simple pleasures of just opening the fridge and seeing that we have a stocked fridge, that we can make a beautiful meal together, that we have so much love and respect for one another that we can still find enjoyment. So yeah, I the two things that come to mind when you ask me that question are, I can feel that my brain has changed. I can feel that the distraction of everything that has been unearthed 
during this year. And I think I've been disenchanted. Some of the thinking that comes with this spiritual life can be magical thinking. You know, if I just trust, if I just focus on all the positive, then everything will be okay and nothing bad will ever happen. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been around spaces that have that thinking, but yeah, I've, I've definitely been disenchanted. And so I think more important than ever is we cannot control so much and I can't, I can't buy into um, a lot of that thinking, you know, a lot of the positive spin. Yeah. But I can know that there is still an undercurrent of contentment and gratitude, even in the midst of all of my resistance, discomfort and suffering. I can know that for myself. I think that's helpful for a lot of us to hear that uh, we don't need to be too quick to put a positive spin on uh, a year that uh, we would never want to, to live through again. I, I want to give you a chance to share uh, where to find you. As I, I started today by telling folks that it was my daughter who first brought me to your class. I think she was 14. She's now just about 18. Um, and what you did for her, that opening of the door, being that right teacher, uh, meant that she coped and continues to cope with her teen years in a way that I marvel at and I so wish I had have had. So I, so I just I can't promote you enough. I, so please share with folks where to find you so that they can, um, if you are the right teacher for them, can, can be in your presence. Um, and touch their breath a little bit more. It means so much to me. And, you know, you go to these business classes when you're an entrepreneur and they talk about the importance of niche. And it's becoming sort of clear to me that if there was a niche for my work in the world, it might be the teenager. Mm. So much pivotal change and pain happened in those years for me. And I still feel like I can really just be right there with the teenage version of me. Mm -hmm. And so when I work with teenage humans, I can just feel that. I can feel that. And I think they feel that. And then, and I, and I can plant these seeds, you know, that you are not your thoughts, that you are stronger than you think in a lot of different ways. And in my experience there with each teenage client, I have been able to show them, look at how you feel now. You know, I, I, not by words, but just by moving in ways that are appropriate and, and accessible and making sure that they feel incredibly comfortable. But there is a moment where, okay, notice how you feel now. And I find in this work that once we do it once, you know, our mind, our bodies remember, and we have that hope, we have that belief that we can do that for ourselves. So I, I wanted to just start that answer by thanking you for um, telling me that about your daughter. She is a remarkable one. 
And then to say that I have a website, as, as you've mentioned, lisadumasyoga.com. And, you know, there are several links on how to connect with me. I'm always happy to talk with people on the phone first because yoga therapy is, it can be confusing. What are we going to be doing? Are we going to be doing some handstands and downward facing dog? You know, there's a lot of mysticism about yoga. Um, so I am happy to, to talk to people about what that actually looks like, because it really is simple. It's real world. It, it is a modern approach to help us feel more balanced and harmonious in our bodies and our minds, and maybe with our connection to something bigger than us, however you see that. So working with people one-on-one, -on -one, that's a huge passion and it translates well digitally. And then because of the pandemic, I launched a way in which you can utilize yoga therapy with me for an affordable monthly price, because I think a lot of us in this industry were pivoting and, you know, how can we best serve? So I just wanted it to be easy and affordable. I, I teach live for members. All of those recordings go in one place. I consistently record all different kinds of practices that are more targeted to supporting mental health in a program that I call Vibrancy and Tranquility Daily. So that's something that is available as well. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to share that. Well, thank you, Lisa, for bringing your, your light and your humanity, um, your presence to this conversation today. It's been really, really wonderful and, and a gift to be with you. Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. I'm so honored to have been asked. Thank you. You've been listening to Souls and Souls. I'm the Reverend Beth Hayward. If you like what you've heard, please be sure to rate, subscribe, like, and share these podcasts with others who might be interested. We drop a new episode every other week on Wednesday. And if you want to connect further, you can look for us at our website, canadianmemorial.org. Just click on the Souls and Souls link. Until next time.